This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. I left the studio door open and guess who wandered in? I don't know. Mark Hurd? Yeah. Mark Hurd, the CEO of Oracle, joins <laughs> us right now. Uh, Mark, glad to have you uh, on the opposite side of the coast. Restraining order is still in place. Um, let me ask you, Mark, uh, so many questions, but one is M&A. You guys have grown so uh, amazingly on the cloud side of the business, some of it with M&A, some of it with organic growth. But I wonder when you look at the valuations on a lot of the cloud companies out there, if you see an attractiveness to continue doing more M&A. So I wonder in here, and the first question you're going to ask me is M&A. I, <laughs> hey, man, I, you know. He's got such a soft touch. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I really appreciate it. Um, Mark's, Mark's used to a hard-charging tennis game. I figured he could handle that. <laughs> well, you, you know, uh, Corey, I mean, our focus really isn't um, about any valuation per se. I mean, it starts with strategically, does something make sense for us? Um, second, does it make financial sense for us? And third, is it something we can, we can go execute, we can go operate it and go run it? And so those are the those are the filters that we work through. Um, you know, I think our history has been over the past several years to focus on the go forward part of IT, which has been uh, in the cloud. You've seen that manifest itself in many of the deals that uh, that we have done. And so I think the likelihood that we go do something that's you know, sort of backward looking, if you will, in terms of old IT is is not something we're going to focus on. And so we'll focus on doing more. You saw us by NetSuite prob- roughly a year ago. Uh, today, uh, it's roughly that time frame, and so we'll, we'll continue to look. But remember, there's not as many companies, Corey, in our industry as there were uh, several years ago. So it, it, there, there isn't the, the the wide array of choices that you might think there might be. In Does the that mean it has to be a bigger acquisition, or should we expect it would be a bigger acquisition because there aren't so many choices out there? No, I don't want to. I don't want to signal that, Carol. I mean, I, I think uh, for us. You know, again, we're very many of the acquisitions we've done over the past several years have actually been smaller. No, I know. Um, it's been things that uh, have filled in a gap in our portfolio. We've got very much a build strategy, and you know, we spend five billion dollars plus in R and D uh, per year. So we've been we have a very active gen- uh, pipeline of new products coming to market, and so we typically map that out, look for things that we're not going to do, and things that will strategically fit in places that we're not we're not going to build. Um, uh, when I reported on your last quarter's earnings, one of your competitors just lit me up both in personal phone calls and on the Twitter sphere, suggesting that uh, competitors have actually fueled a lot of their growth uh, with acquisitions that uh, I think haven't been noticed as much by the market when they look at sort of top line and sales based valuations. Is that a question? I was going to say, Corey, is there a question there? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I, I, when I look at what you guys have done, it seems like you've gone across lots of different categories and seen really big growth, growth in the cloud. And I wonder where you see the best opportunities there. Listen, as we talked in our last uh, release, um, our previous quarter, we, we're growing our database business um, faster than market. And forget whether that's in the cloud or on-premise, whatever it may be. And I tend to think of these things in ecosystems, ecosystems being defined, whether it's our support business, our license business, or our cloud business. Our, our database business is growing faster than the marketplace. We're gaining market share in a market that we have uh, almost – we're bigger than almost all others combined. In applications uh, last quarter, uh, we grew our business in a market that's, Corey, probably grown a couple of percentage points – we grew our business 18 percent, 
And so, you know, when you look at the, forget whether it's cloud for it, we've talked a lot about cloud really as we've, as we've moved a lot of our offers to the cloud and clearly in applications, what's driving that growth is, is our SaaS business, our, our software as a service applications business. Um, but at the end of the day, our applications business is growing uh, high double digits. I made a statement, I think probably a year ago that I expected that this year that our, our, for the full year, our applications business would grow roughly uh, double digits, and I stand by that statement. So, we're we're gaining a lot of market share um, across the board. Mark, what's the technology that gets you guys really excited back at Oracle? Is it machine learning? Is it all about that going forward? You know, I I, I think Carol, the better way I think of some of the things that you know you've heard the terms shift a bit over the past couple of years. You heard a lot about analytics, mm-hmm. then you heard this term big data. Uh, now it's a lot about machine learning. So. You know, the Valley tends to invent these new words um, that are sort of the latest thing out there. And I think many of these things you're hearing about, Carol, it will become features uh, of products as opposed to solutions in and of themselves. So if you talk about machine learning, which you just brought up, um, if I talk to our head of HR about machine learning, she has roughly no idea what I'm talking about. But if I talk to her about a new recruiting application right. where I apply machine learning and I can now give her incredible insights at rapid speed as she's in the middle of recruiting. Data learning she, after data. She's extreme, itself. And the computer gets smarter and smarter. Right. We hire thousands and thousands of people. She'd love to have a better idea whether Carol's going to be successful at Oracle, or how successful, what the probability is, what training she should have, etc., based on all of the data that we have available to us. Now the computers can do a lot of that work. So you will see machine learning coming to the data, if you will, coming to the applications. You'll see this whole true in many of these new things that are coming along. And so the objective is to try to remove the latency out of the decisioning process. How can I get better information, faster. I mean, you think about many of the uh, companies in our in, in the uh, uh, mobile uh, phone business, telecommunications industry. When customers leave them, um, these phone calls are typically two to three minutes to a call center. Mm-hmm. And the poor call center agent is running around trying to get information in as quick as they can about who's even calling, let alone how to retain them and keep them, what offers to give them, et cetera. The computer can now start doing all of this work. So you will start seeing machine learning in all of these areas. If I could say one more thing. So are you excited about it then? <laughs> well, I'm very excited about it. I think if you talk about machine learning just in the abstract, right? Um, it, it, it's it's like, okay, tell me. I, I will tell you one funny story. Last week. You got 30 uh, seconds. 30 seconds. Well, last week I was keynoting. Um, an event in Europe, and Stephen Hawking was on just mm-hmm. before me. And he started, before I spoke, to say machine learning is the beginning of the end of humanity. Because we won't need us. Uh, that was sort of his <laughs> thesis. But when you start talking about databases right, and SaaS right. after that, it's not a great start. Right, exactly. Um, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you very much, Carol. Stop yeah, I really appreciate it, Mark. Thanks, Corey. Yeah. Mark Hurd, CEO at uh, Oracle, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Buffalo Wild Wings surging after it's said to get a bid from Rourke Capital Group. That's the private equity owner of Arby's, Carl's Jr., and some other fast food brands. Let's talk I about this. I thought that was a, my new theme song. You know? <laughs> in your dreams. Stephen Anderson, senior <laughs> restaurant and consumer analyst at Maxim Group. He joins us on the phone in New York and in our Bloomberg 1130 studio at Bloomberg headquarters in New York City. Ed Hammond, deals reporter at Bloomberg News. Ed, um, this sounds like a logical uh, link up, if you will. Like it certainly sounds yeah. It certainly <laughs> sounds like a logical price. Look, this is um, 
you look at this premium, right? 48%. It was, when they made the offer, it was a 48% premium above the shares. That is a huge number in any sector, but particularly in this space. Um, so it's interesting. You, you could almost say they're playing a game of chicken, trying to stare this one down and not respond or really? not engage. Did right? you really I know, do that? Come on, I'm, come on. Like I had to do it. Shut his mic off. Now. Um, why are they paying such a hefty premium? Well, they're, they're not. They're not or even they're paying off, it, right? They're off, yeah. I think. Look, I think it's obviously an asset they like. Uh, they, you know, they've they've shown. Um, so Raw Capital, the private equity fund that's sort of behind this bit, they've shown desire to expand in the restaurant space. Earlier this uh, this year, they went after Popeyes, which eventually was sold to the Burger King owner uh, restaurant brands. But they wanted to get involved in that process as well. So this is, you know, th they're going after another public company. Obviously, this is slightly um, different kind of chicken, but nonetheless, it's in the space. Um, and it's a big number. And, and mm. you know, the logic says if you put a 48% all cash offer on the table. Um, I'm led to understand it's it's a fully financed offer as well. You would get the target. So it's it's interesting to sort of know more about why um, why Buffalo feel that you know maybe this is an insufficient number or why maybe they feel no number is sufficient and they just think they're going to be a better standalone business. Uh, it's it's a very interesting um, discussion they must have been having internally because if you look at sort of where they've been trading it's not been great uh they've obviously had an activist the activist is now on the board they have a departing management team so it's i, I don't know i mean if they were like going great guns you could say look there's a, there's a standalone case to be made here but i'm not seeing it steven uh anderson from uh, maximum let me ask you where are the economies of scale here what what would they cut what how could they run this thing better than it's been run on its own well, I would say that uh, this is a company that's uh, been seeking uh, under activist pressure to uh, refranchise, as to sell uh, some of the company-owned restaurants to franchisees. And I think with Roar Capital, you have a you have a, a private equity uh, concern that has experience in running heavily franchised brands. So I think uh, if you were to sell to a Roar Capital or someone of like nature, uh, you can get someone who can uh, accelerate uh, the refranchising of the business and maybe get you know, a company that's more focused on free cash flows rather than on operations. But I do think, uh, to the point was made earlier, I think there, there could be even some upside to that $150 uh, level uh, that Aurora Capital is uh, looking at. And, you know, they do think there are certainly economies of scale uh, such that you can have, um, you know, some cost savings beyond the 40 or $50 million that they had uh, planned. Uh, you know, certainly the shift to digital sales and more SGA spending spent to, sent to franchisees. Also think there are, there's, some reduction in food costs. You know, we've seen wing costs, which have been a thorn in the company's side for a better part of a year, actually been declining 15% since the end of the summer. So I do think that that portends higher margins ahead, and I don't think that's really reflected in the uh, price. Finally, look at the EV EBITDA multiple, you know, it's trailing. Trailing 12-month multiple of the stock, uh, you know, it's really around nine times, uh, which sounds uh, high relative to the rest of the industry. But if you look at some of the takeouts, right. uh, I've seen earlier this year from Popeyes and Panera, well below the mid, mid to high teens we've seen. So, Stephen, it's it's Ed Hammond. I got a question for you on this. Look, this is a company obviously you follow. You probably know the shareholder base a ton better than I do. Is, is this something the shareholders of this company are going to be happy about that they've received? You know, what looks on paper at least like a very substantial premium offer, and they've uh, at least as far as we can tell at this point not really engaged 
Well, I think some of these more recent shareholders, I think, would be very pleased, uh, given the stock was barely trading over $100 uh, just uh, a little over a month ago. Uh, but I think for some of the more entrenched investors, and I would include uh, – the uh, and I would include the uh, Mercado is in that uh, bunch uh, since their basis was $143 per share. So I would think with their three seats on the board, they might very well uh, try to get a better price. So have they been able to hold price as the as the cost of goods has come down? Are they is the menu items the same? Because I I told Carol I'd take her out to dinner when we're in Chicago, and you know, but I don't want to I don't want to get getting myself into financially. Mm-hmm. One concern we had had uh, with this concept for a while is that they had been the value leader in the in casual dining, particularly in bar and grill. As wing prices uh, increased significantly in the last couple of years, I think they've lost some of that uh, value facade. But I think as wing prices uh, start to retreat, I think they can. There's an opportunity for them to regain uh, that value status, and that's through cutting why prices. I, I think it may, uh, I would say they. Well, I don't say cutting prices, but at least holding the line on menu price increase. Ed Hammond, is it possible or is it expected that somebody else comes in and makes a competing bid for Buffalo? I mean, look, it's always possible in this space. Obviously, there's a lot of appetite, um, but it's wow. hard. There he goes again. Come on. Oh. Dude, I didn't mean I, that. Was just, it's that's like he's just got a norm- list here nah, he's working that's, off. That's of. just my normal vocab. I just flow like that. <laughs> so, look, I, I think, look, it's, it's entirely possible, but. If someone's going to come in and they're going to top the offer that's on the table, and bear in mind, look, Raw could go slightly high, you, you would have to be very, very confident that you can really put this business together and um, do something great with it. All those food puns. Wow, Ed Hammond. Too easy. Yeah. Ed Hammond, deals reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Stephen Anderson, our thanks to you as well, senior restaurant and consumer analyst at Maxim Group, joining us on the phone from New York. Buffalo Wild Wings stock right now up 25%, 146.25 a share. Listen, do you want to know a secret? about a secret but we'll find out we've got uh, dave wilson bloomberg stocks columnist in the house uh who does have a secret apparently it all relates to his chart of the day what is it not just a secret cow a dirty little secret that's what uh, rich bernstein calls it uh wow he's finally gonna tell us right the money manager you know the former merrill lynch strategist and he's looking at technology stocks. I mean, clearly they have been market leaders this year. But he's focusing on the earnings, though, and basically making the point that they are more cyclical than many investors give them credit for. So, in other words, when companies are doing well, uh, technology companies tend to be at the forefront of that. When they aren't doing so well... Uh, they they get hurt more than a lot of others. Uh, and what he does is he goes back to 1990 and uses uh, S&P 500 indexes for technology and consumer staples, food, beverage, tobacco, household products, and contrasts the two as a way to illustrate the swings that you see in earnings over time for the technology companies. Uh, and the way he sees it, investors tend to confuse that relationship with what they call stable growth. And it seems to be happening again, in his view. And he's 
raising the possibility, uh, given the focus on you know, technology earnings and how they looking good at this point, that we may be getting toward a peak in corporate profits. And you know, if the cycle turns for the worse, then you have to be looking at this group uh, especially carefully. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Our Bloomberg.com is Dave Wilson with his chart of the day. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's the Bloomberg Radio of Bloomberg's drive to the close. So why wouldn't we have someone named Porsche? Oliver Porsche joins us right now. Chief market strategist at Bruderman Brothers uh, with a look at uh, sort of the, how to play the end of this market. And I've got to say, when you're up a NASDAQ up 25%, if you're up 15% in the S&P 500, uh, whether you're an amateur or a pro, I wonder if some people are just looking at the finish line saying, can't get here fast enough. I want to, I want to print these numbers. Well, uh, certainly there is a valid case to be made to uh, take some chips off the table and be careful. I wouldn't sell out of this market, though. I think there's uh, some strong legs behind it. There's some strong fundamental reasons why the market has climbed as much as it has. Uh, of course, some valuations are stretched, but not all of them. And so you want to take a look and, and kind of avoid the sectors that are greatest, greatest risk of tax reform not happening. So... Ah, okay. So if it doesn't happen, what would be the implications for investors and particularly for financial investments? Yeah, so, um, look, I mean, the market has risen for three reasons. Uh, a very accommodating Federal Reserve monetary policy, strong corporate earnings, and better than uh, expected economic growth, as well as, of course, the expectation of corporate and personal tax reform. Uh, the latter of which is where we're seeing some chinks in the armor in the market right now. Uh, healthcare stocks and uh, technology stocks in particular have uh, risen as a result of the expectation of corporate tax reform because they could be some of the biggest beneficiary of any kind of reputation repatriation tax. So I would uh, lessen up on those sectors right now if I'm a cautious investor and focus more on consumer staple stocks, energy stocks, utilities uh, that have slightly better attractive valuation, certainly a more attractive dividend yield, and are not as likely to be impacted negatively uh, if tax reform gets delayed or uh, put off altogether. Well, um, to that, I mean, what kind of dividend yields can we reasonably expect here from a stock? You know, because some of the stocks that have got great dividend yields, uh, even those in, in those sectors you're describing, have those great yields because the stocks keep going down. Well, but uh, there's exceptions. So, again, if you think about the global picture and what's happening, and uh, overall, for instance, demand for energy has continued to uh, improve. There have been some hiccups in that thesis over the last few days, but generally speaking, we like energy companies. Companies like Royal Dutch Shell, it's got a 5.7% dividend yield. The stock is up about 14% year-to-date, but still reasonably valued compared to some of its U.S. counterparts like ExxonMobil or Chevron. Southern companies. 
company, 4.5% yield, up about 10% over the last 12 months. Uh, same with PPL uh, Corp, similar yield, and up about 12%. So you have to be selective. You have to do your homework. Um, and you want to look at companies that have a history of raising their dividends and have a strong balance sheet, because that's going to be a very, very critical in this environment. So when you look at something like General Electric, which has obviously been in the news over the last week or so, wondering about what the restructuring is, and then big news this week, you know, slicing its uh, dividend in half, you, I'm assuming, run in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, so look, if you own General Electric and, and you know, you didn't sell in the last, uh, uh, up to this event, then I think you hold it for at least the next two, three days and let the dust settle out a little bit. It's uh, rarely smart to sell right on the news, as that can uh, often have a counterproductive, uh, you know, event. But you know, I wouldn't buy the stock at, at right now either. Um, this can easily turn into a value trap. And, and certainly, uh, if you've got cash in hand, I think there's more attractive places over the next 12 months to put it than GE. Um, how do you source through and what, what kind of uh, characteristics are you looking for for a company uh, that's, uh, let's say, in the energy sector that's got a dividend yield that you like, that you think has got some safety? What else has it got mm-hmm. to show you? Well, so certainly, uh, you know, what are their profit margins? What does their cash flow? How predictable are their cash flows? And where are they getting those revenues from? Um, you know, not all revenues are created alike, and some areas are more risky than others. And so you want to take a look at that. One great example for, uh, uh, you know, we look at Total, the French energy company, which has very similar characteristics to ExxonMobil. But unlike ExxonMobil, Total actually gets most of their energy production out of North America, whereas ExxonMobil, is much more internationally diversified. So we think that the American landscape is much steadier than the rest of the world, and so we would prefer X, uh, uh, Total over ExxonMobil in, in, in this case. Uh, similar yield, similar valuation, uh, much more attractive. So that's why you look at also a company like Diageo. Yeah, Diageo, well diversified. Hey, heading into the holidays, you know, they don't make uh, not not you know uh, eggnog, but uh, the alcohol business is strong, and it certainly picks up in this type of season. So here's a company that's well positioned. They've got great brand recognition and sub-brand recognition, and uh, we think is, in spite of having risen about thirty percent year to date, still has uh, legs to go. Again, you want to be a little bit careful in all of these, and, and make sure that you pick companies that are fundamentally strong. And as Warren Buffett always says, companies that you're prepared to own for many, many years. Uh, these are not short-term trades that we're looking at. Um, as you start to look for those kinds of companies, too, I'd imagine, again, that free, you know, if you're looking at dividends, you're also looking at free cash flow, which is, to me, the ultimate sign of health of a company, but it's going to leave you out of a lot of tech companies and sort of high flyers. Yeah, I mean, this, look, you have to apply different metrics to different sectors, right? You wouldn't look at an energy company or utility company the way we, you would look at a financial uh, company or a technology company because they run very differently, very different businesses, and so different metrics apply. Yes, free cash flow is very, very important, um, but look, you would have missed out on Amazon if you looked at free cash flow only, <laughs> right? And, and that stock certainly done well. Um, yeah. So you want to be careful, and don't be afraid to go overseas. There's some attractive active values both in Europe and Japan that investors should look at. Oliver Porsche over at Bruderman Brothers. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. It costs a little more, but that name cracked me up. 
Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Tuesday session. And despite an overall lower market, if you look at those major equity averages, just breaking down the S&P, you've got about half the names, 252 higher in today's session, 251 lower, three unchanged. Let's talk about uh, the number three gainer in the S&P 500. That is Mattel, up another 5% after gaining more than 20% in yesterday's trade. Number three gainer, as I mentioned, the S&P up 5.1% to $18.54 a share, still down more than 30% in 2017. But a Mattel investor, Jerome Dotson, who runs the $4.9 billion Parnassus Endeavor Fund, does not expect the maker of Barbie and Hot Wheels to accept a takeover offer anywhere near its current stock price. He says the company should fetch as much as $25 a share in a potential acquisition, uh, and that would be a premium of about 35% above the stock price today. So uh, keep in mind, we've had a lot of speculation, Corey, about a Mattel takeover speculation since the company uh, had some dismal results last month, and folks have suggested uh, that uh, maybe they'd be better off finding a suitor. And then you have the Wall Street Journal adding fire, or adding fuel to the fire, I should say, last week with a report that Mattel has held recent merger talks with Hasbro. Hasbro, by the way, down a little bit in today's session, down about eight-tenths of a percent, but Mattel up four, 5%. We saw shares of Freeport MacMoran down uh, pretty good today, down 4%, 4.4% to be exact. Um, uh, a lot of the sort of basic mining companies uh, and others, global miners, base metals uh, companies with base metal exposure were down today. After you saw a slide in, in the value of those things, whether it was uh, BHP or Rio or Vale, you know, you name it. Um, uh, we sent some data out of China that suggested that uh, the Chinese economy growth seems to be slowing a little bit. Uh, and with credit tightening, uh, it means a less demand for base metals. And Freeport McMoran, of course, is a huge player there. Uh, um, on top of that, uh, there was some news out of the company's Indonesian unit that they had cloned the, uh, the, the main access road to uh, its big mine in Indonesia has been closed for the second time in three days after a shooting. And so that road being closed might actually affect how much copper comes out uh, this this quarter. And the result is uh, shares of Freeport McMoran down 4.4%. Let's talk about the number two gainer in the S&P 500. It's a stock that Always was up. Always positive. I am a Always positive. Always upbeat. Glasses half yeah, not for me. Something took <laughs> half my days. All right, we're talking about Envision Healthcare, number two gainer in the S&P 500, up uh, more than 10% in today's session. Let me just take a look at the close here. $28.52 a share. It was up 3.6% in the Monday session and is now still down, though, 55% this year. Ouch. But uh, why is it up today? Well, Envision Healthcare, it's a health services provider. It's under pressure, though, from activist investor Starboard Value. It's apparently attracted some buyout interest from firms, including Carlyle Group, and then another group, including Onex Corporation. This is according to people familiar with the matter. So uh, maybe some interest. We'll see. Uh, Envision said October 31st that its board is considering options to enhance shareholder value. So the stock up yesterday and again, big time today, Corey. Let me go in real quick here. Uh, advanced Auto Parts, a stock that's been really beaten up over the last year, was trading as high as uh, uh, you know, 170, 180. Uh, earlier in the year, traded uh, it was up today. It was at ninety-five dollars a share, so it's down about forty percent for the year, but up sixteen percent today. Biggest gainer in the S and P five hundred because it looks like the turnaround is actually taking place there uh, faster than expected. A, a, a nice earnings call yesterday, uh, and optimism.
optimism on the call has this stock uh, finally uh, making some progress on their long-term plans to turn the business around. The stock up 16% to 95.72. All right, let's get to the Volatility Index Report brought to you by SIBO VIX Options and Futures. Volatility can be harnessed with SIBO VIX Options and Futures. See disclosures and learn more at cboe.com slash powerful outcomes VIX. And the VIX in the Tuesday session just up a hair, up two-tenths of a percent, closing at 11.52. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson joins us right now with his stock of the day. And that would be NCS Multistage Holdings, Corey. You know, it's one of those corporate names you have to pick apart to understand the N in NCS refers to co-founder and current CEO Robert Nipper. Multistage is a relation to the process of drilling oil and gas wells with hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking. The company's products target multiple locations within a shale formation through what's known as pinpoint stimulation. Multiple and when stages. You there we go. Well, there you go. Uh, when you see holdings in a name, there's often deal-making in its history, and sure enough, that's the case here. NCS Multistage has been controlled by the private equity firm Advent International since 2012. Advent took the company public in April, and the ticker is NCSM. NCS Multistage made its initial public offering at $17 a share. Today, the stock fell below that price for the first time since the IPO. Disappointing third quarter results were the culprit. Earnings and revenue trailed analysts' average estimates in a Bloomberg survey after having beaten them for the second quarter, which was its first IPO earnings release. Now, the shortfalls touched off NCS Multistage's biggest one-day drop since the IPO. The shares fell 22% to close at $16.14. Always a bummer when you're below your IPO price. Absolutely. <laughs> it's I mean, not a how good many day. how many times have I talked about <laughs> busted IPOs, yep. you know? And you tend to focus on the first day of trading when it comes to that uh, phrase. I mean, this is a stock that was up as much as 71% from its IPO price in the first few weeks of trading. So it's given back that gain now and turned lower. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Dave Wilson with his Bloomberg stock of the day. Baby got back. Baby got back. Oh, I wish you all could see Charlie Pellet right now. Oh my god. One of his favorite songs. I just looked up at the camera. Even Alex Webb, our Apple News reporter, is not dancing as Charlie Pellet just back. was. But uh, yeah, he should have done that on Conan. Uh, yeah, Alex exactly. Webb, Bloomer News tech reporter, about the back of the iPhone. Uh, nice, nice scoop on uh, what everyone wants to know. What's the next phone going to have in it? Uh, what, what are they looking at at Apple? So actually, it's not even the next phone in terms of what might come this year, but um, in terms of what might come in 2018, but 2019. Usually, you talk about two-year cycles for any phone. So you've got the iPhone 10, which just came out. Next year's will kind of be advances on that, and the year after, we're looking at a 3D sensor on the back of the phone. The th iPhone 10 has a 3D sensor on the front of the phone, the side on which the screen is, but on the back where the main camera is, there'll be a 3D sensor, we think, in 2019. What does the 3D sensor do right now on the iPhone 10? What, what purposes are? I know the emojis are really cool. 
Yeah, I mean, it's basically two things. The an- animated emojis, otherwise known as, now they call them the animoji. Animoji, yes. Uh, thanks. Um, someone has has kids, right? Um, the so animoji um, and face ID are the two main things. It also lets you do sort of better, more accurate uh, Snapchat filters, snap filters. Um, but it's really quite... It's really limited to your face in front of you. The, the face ID technology is very accurate, but over a relatively short distance. You couldn't put something, say, 10 feet away, and it would work as accurately. What the sensor they're developing for the rear of the phone will do is let you do um, augmented reality stuff in the field of view, what you're actually looking at, what's in front of you. That the moment they can. How, how do- is that different than what we saw with Pokemon Go, which which would recommend it would recognize, say, a park bench in front of you or a fire hydrant or whatever? Right. So at the moment they have this thing called AR Kit, which is a tool um, which is it's built into the Apple operating, so the um, iPhone operating system, iOS, and that enables some augmented reality functions. But basically, it identifies a flat surface and lets you put something on it. So think about a Monopoly board. It can put a virtual Monopoly board on the table in front of you, and you can see pieces moving around as you play it on your screen, but if you put your hand into the field of view, it does not recognize that there's a hand there, and you can't, for example, pick up a virtual Monopoly piece. By putting a 3D sensor in the back of your phone, it could theoretically do that. You could put your hand into the field of view, pick up the top hat, and move it to, in the British sense, the Angel Islington. I have no idea what it might be in the American one. So is this cool? <laughs> I don't know. Park is Place. This, How about that? Okay, that work for you? Wait, wait. Is this going to help those sell phones? I mean, they certainly hope or so. Or will they go direct wow. to jail and not collect $200? <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. I, 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 I don't possibly surmise on, on, on that issue. Um, I hope, hopefully not. Um, the... I mean, this is what they're hoping, right? The the problem has been in the past two years, what really can you introduce to smartphones to convince people to buy them? Um, there's a, an increasing fear that smartphone sales have plateaued. Um, they can do stuff... As we in- saw in the world of PCs, where people are still using PCs uh, in mass, but they don't see the reason to upgrade. Right, and also with iPad, you know, I, I've quite often thought that they made the first iPad too good, because what do you use it for? Watching films, um, YouTube, social media, emails. My iPad, my iPad is uh, three or four years old, and I haven't seen the need to upgrade. Degraded until I left it on an airplane on Sunday, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, I was going to I was going to raise that and drop you in it, but um, yeah, it's, so you're trying to Im- improve the software, the hardware. Sorry, beyond just improving the chips, which means they can improve the software. Actually, bringing in new hardware tools is something which they really hope c- can drive upgrades. And Tim Cook has been very bullish on augmented reality more broadly. Is there a lot of consumer though applications? I'm just thinking about. You know, if you're yes. in a store or something? So if you think about IKEA right now, IKEA has an app which lets you see in your living room and place a virtual sofa in the middle of that mm-hmm. living room. Mm-hmm. What it can't do is place a mirror or a picture on your wall, right? So it's very good on the horizontal plane. It's not very good at the vertical plane. And so adding a 3D sensor would let you do things like that, for instance. Um, this, this kind of development is also interesting because it, it's done in concert with other companies, right? Other companies that are making the cameras or making the things. I always thought it useful. I, the, the, the Consumer Electronics Show, which is painful for reporters, at least I find it painful. Uh, the back of the room is really interesting where, where you've got companies sort of showing off, hey, we're working on a chip now that we'll have in production two years from now that will allow you to do this. And it might be just something that will make your remote control and your TV work more easily. But the remote control makers are very excited about this stuff. I would imagine there are a lot of companies working with Apple on this. Absolutely. You know, I, I've spoken to people who work or have worked at Apple. Apple has no official president presence at WWDC. In reality, they've got a, an army of people out there looking at what the new technologies are, seeing what Sorry, they Sorry, CES, uh, you mean? What did I say? Sorry. Uh, WWDC, of course. Yeah. I apologize. Um, the Consumer Electronics Electronic Show in Vegas, yeah. which is in January. Yeah, at, the CES, at CES in January, they've got an army of people out there sort of scouting technologies, seeing what they could put – 
in future versions of the iPhone and or future versions of any hardware. And um, really, it's these companies who are working on the core technology. Apple fine-tunes it and puts the bells and whistles on top. Hmm. So maybe it's good I've held off not buying that iPhone 10. Well, well this is why they hate these stories coming right. out, right? This is why Tim Cook has said it. this. He said, we, 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 you know, the earlier report, the earlier the reporting is about the next iPhone, the, the bigger the, the problem is for our current sales because people will hold off. But, you know, it's two years out. That's a long time for wait for any phone. And as we've said, it may still not surface. We know they're working on it. That's the target. Is that surface? Is that a pun? <laughs> There's it, no stylus coming. It's a very, very crowbarred one, if so. <laughs> Expect okay. nothing less. Alex Webb. <laughs> Covers Bloomberg uh, for Bloomberg News covers uh, uh, Apple for us. We're glad to have you. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at two o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser. And I'm at Corey TV. 